Uh, have you ever been um, surprised by your actions? Shocked by the words that come out of your mouth? I'm not talking about the times when you blow it, because those happen all the times, the times when you wish you could take back in what you said. Um, I'm talking about the times when you've been pleasantly surprised by the actions that have come naturally to you or the words that have just sort of spilled out of your mouth and you thought, I didn't know that was in there. Like, yeah, I'll do the dishes. What? Like, and, and you, you're delighted and you're excited and, and there's a genuine, yeah, oh, I didn't know that was in there. You know, or, or the times when you, uh, um, you, you, someone asks for money and, and, and you, you give and before you can even think about it, you're like, oh, I was, I enjoyed that and I didn't even think about what that money could do for me. That just, that was a joy to give. Um, as we attempt to, to raise our kids into decent Christian human beings, uh, we are trying to instill in them gratitude. And so uh, many of you parents will resonate with this. I think where you pour a glass of milk uh, for your child and then say, what do you say? And then they say, thank you, with some amount of genuineness or not <laughs> in their voice. Um, but you're, 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 you're building something there, right? You're, you're training them in gratitude. And then one day... This moment happens, which is amazing, when you give them something or they receive something and there is a genuine expression of gratitude that comes out. And you can tell that it's, it's something that's not just rote memory. It's actually the, all those thank yous have worked their way down into their heart and there's a genuine expression of gratitude. The, the, the heart overflows externally. The truth is that all of our actions spring from our heart. All of our actions spring from our heart. And that is, uh, that is a frightening thought, actually, when we think about all that does come out of us. Um, if our hearts are hard and selfish, our actions, our words reflect that. If our hearts are soft towards God and towards his Holy Spirit, our actions and our words reflect that. And, and this, is, um, this is what Jesus says when he's talking about uh, a tree, right? He says, you can, you can tell a tree by its fruit. A, a good tree will produce good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. You can tell what kind of tree it is by the fruit. But the question for us this morning, and I think the question that anyone who hears that has to ask is, okay, well, can, can a tree change? Can a, can a heart be changed? Can a heart be transformed? Can a tree be grafted in? Maybe that's the language, right? The answer is yes. That's what the Bible says. Yes, hearts can be changed. Uh, And we will see that this morning in our passage from Jeremiah today. Jeremiah, a little piece of trivia here. Jeremiah, the biggest book in the Bible. Don't know if you knew that. The most words. And uh, Jeremiah was a really significant prophetic figure for the people of Israel. Uh, his ministry lasted during, uh, for quite some time and also during a really crucial time for the kingdom of, kingdoms of Israel and Judah, who at that point had they'd split into two, but both of them were heading into exile at different times. And Jeremiah, uh, his ministry occurs during this really pivotal time. And so he speaks to God's people uh, in preparation for their uh, being sent off into exile and also while they're in exile. And he gives them some words of hope for what's going to happen after exile, how how they're going to be restored. When he receives this call from God, uh, God gives him six words that are going to define his ministry. They're uprooting, tearing down, destroying, overthrowing, building, 
and planting. Those are the words that are going to define Jeremiah's ministry. And if you read Jeremiah, you'll find that that proportion, about two-thirds tearing down and one-third building up, is about consistent with his message throughout the book of Jeremiah. Um, a, a big part of his ministry was helping God's people understand that this, this exile that was coming was part of God's judgment. It was, it was something that God was doing in them. And they needed to understand that this was from the Lord because of all of the generations and decades of breaking the covenant that he had made with them. The covenant that God had established with his people through Moses at Mount Sinai, he gave them the law, right? He said, this is going to be the way that we relate to each other. And the people said, we are going to do everything that's written in the law. But of course, we read the Old Testament And we know that the story of God's people is of constantly breaking that law, constantly forgetting that God is their Lord, constantly failing to live up to to all of the law. And Jesus summarizes the law this way, right? uh, Loving God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. That was what Israel failed to do, and that is what we, of course, also fail to do. Their story is our story. So, so much of Jeremiah, his message to God's people is this tearing down, right? Tearing down the kingdoms that you've built up, overthrowing the idols that you've made in your life, um, removing you from this land that you took so selfishly for, or that you, you have treated with, with selfishness and not use it as a blessing to others, to the other nations. Um, and then we get these glimpses of the building and the planting that God is going to do in their lives. And that leads us to Jeremiah 31, which is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And it's this description of a new way that God and his people are going to relate to each other. It's a new way that they are going to interact, and it's his description of the new covenant. So uh, it'll be on the screen if you want to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, 31. It's very easy to remember. 31, 31. That's where it starts. This is God's word for us today. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful description of the new covenant. Would you capture our imaginations this morning and draw us into this new way of relating to you with your law written on our minds and hearts, our sins forgiven, and an intimate knowledge of who you are? Thank you, Lord. Amen. So this is the only time in the Old Testament that the phrase new covenant is used. In the New Testament, we encounter it a bunch. Jesus refers to it. Paul talks about it. The writer of Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about what this new covenant is. And we 
looking through the lens, looking backwards through the New Testament to the Old Testament, we can see that this description of the New Covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus uses this language in the Last Supper with his disciples when he's pouring the wine into the cup. We recite it every week when we come to this table, right? This cup is the new covenant shed in his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so this description that Jeremiah gives us whenever one of the New Testament writers talks about the new covenant, this is what they're referring to, this description here. Our sins are removed from us, and as the end of this says, that that God would forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. And then uh, Jesus also, he makes it clear after his death and after his resurrection, he's going to ascend to the Father, and when he does, he's going to leave the Holy Spirit here, and the Holy Spirit is the one who is going to guide us into truth, who's going to write God's law on our minds and our hearts. This is the description that's compelling to me that describes what it is to have a changed heart. To have a changed heart in the new covenant is to have a heart that naturally is inclined towards God's law, towards doing the things that God wants. It's, it's less about um, forcing um, external boundaries around our behavior so that we don't do certain things. It's more about we naturally want to do the very things that God wants to do. We naturally want to care for those who are less fortunate than us. We naturally want to reconcile relationships, though sometimes that's difficult. As we grow in the faith and as the Spirit does this work in us more and more, our inclinations are changed to be like that of Christ. That's such a beautiful image to me. But it begs, it begs a question that I think we have to wrestle with, which is this. Do you really actually believe that change can happen, that change is actually possible? Do you believe that for yourself, that you are able to change, that God is able to shape and change your own heart? Do you believe that about other people? Do you believe that about racists in Charlottesville who march, that God might actually be powerful enough in his mercy to change the inclinations of their heart? Or maybe it's the way that you handle conflict. Could God come in and in his power change the way that you natively deal with stress and conflict? Making you a presence of grace rather than an anxious presence. Or maybe it's the way that you have always let fear of the unknown or fear of what other people think determine decisions that you make. Could God in his power through the Holy Spirit come in and start to change that inclination so that fear no longer drives your decisions. Or maybe it's when life feels out of control and you turn to shopping or pornography or food or whatever it is that helps you manage uh, that, the stress and the chaos of, of life. Could God come in in his power in the Holy Spirit and change those inclinations so that those are no longer the things that you turn to, but rather God is the one that you turn to when life feels out of control. The Bible says, yes, God can do this and gives us plenty of examples, right? The Apostle Paul himself uh, was this, he was so zealous for persecuting the church. I mean, he was was standing by approving over the murder of Christians and then God gets a hold of him and we see this incredible transformation take place in Paul's life to the point where he ends up giving his life for the sake of the gospel. Moses. Moses was a murderer. 
right? And, and, and not good at speaking in front of people. And God's like, I'm going to use you to have a very special relationship with me. You're going to get to see me. You're also going to be my mouthpiece to Pharaoh. You're going to speak truth to power. And I'm going to use you to help free my people. So the good news that we see here in the new, t- in the new covenant is that not just my sins are forgiven, though that's a, a crucial bedrock foundational part of it, but that the Holy Spirit works in us to change the inclinations of our heart, setting our hearts free so that they are more responsive in the, in, to the ways of Christ. Uh, in the past, the church has used fancy language, and it still does, to talk about this in terms of justification and sanctification. You may have heard those words. Justification being, this, this is how I am made right with God. Uh, this is how God deals with the sin problem that separates me from God. In Christ, through faith in Christ's death and resurrection, my sins are forgiven. That sin problem that separated me from God is not a problem anymore. This is how I'm justified and, and how I'm made right with God. But once that happens, then is the pro- begins the process of sanctification, which is just a big old fancy word that means change. <laughs> um, this is how I'm made holy. This is how I'm, my heart is changed and formed. And that's this work of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God living within us and shaping us more and more into the image of Christ, changing the inclinations of our hearts so that more and more we, just, we naturally want to do the things that Jesus wants to do. And this is a lifelong process, right? We will never achieve full sanctification. <laughs> we will never get there in this life. Um, no matter our age, there is always some element of our heart, some inclination um, that God is at work forming and changing. So how does this happen? This heart change that the new covenant promises us, that, that our inclinations can actually be shaped and changed. I, I have four, four thoughts on how this kind of change happens. I'm sure there are other ways, but these were the ones that felt compelling to me and, um, and true to how God works in our lives. And the first we've already talked about with the way that we raise up kids, and that's just through practice. Part of how our hearts are shaped is through the, the practices that we do, the things we do regularly. We can actually sort of practice our way into a changed heart whether that's training up our children to say thank you until all those thank yous kind of work their way down into the heart and they actually express genuine gratitude. Even the practice of coming regularly to worship every Sunday, to coming to the table regularly, this forms us, this shapes us, right? Uh, As I was mentioning about the catechism, it gives us uh, a framework, a biblical framework for how to see reality, for how to engage the world, for how to live our lives. So part of uh, how our hearts are changed is simply through the things that we practice regularly with intentionality. Second thing I would say is community. The language of the new covenant is, is not of an individual being restored to God or an individual relating to God in this way, but it's of a people. It's God's people together relating to God in this new way of the Spirit. Peter says that we are uh, being built up into a holy nation of all races, all countries, all over the world. This is the church, right? So what would happen if 
trusting that God has put us in community for a reason, what if we brought some of the inclinations of our hearts to light in front of some trusted members of our community? What might that do? How might that shape our hearts so that they look more like Christ? There, uh, there's a group of folks here who uh, decided to do that uh, with their marriages. They, they read a book by John Gottman, a guy who's studied um, marriages here in Seattle for a long time. They read a book, but they also gathered together in small groups and, and brought before each other the inclinations of their heart as it related to their marriages. And, uh, you know, turns out that our hearts are not always inclined to seek the best of the other. But sometimes, in fact, our hearts are inclined towards selfishness. Uh, and so bringing that before, before friends, before trusted people in our community, has a formative effect on our hearts. A number of us have done this with Cascade Fellows, where we have, we've gone through this curriculum and had the opportunity to say, you know what, my relationship to work, uh, I'm not, I think there's more there that Christ desires for me. Um, Right now, my inclination, the way that I approach my work is I'm just, it's a paycheck. It's a necessary evil. But in community, together, we can bring that into the light and say, well, maybe, maybe there's more that God has for us there. Maybe there's a way that our heart can be shaped with our relationship to our work. Thirdly, prayer. Maybe that goes without saying, but I also think it needs to be said. <laughs> uh, prayer draws us into intimacy with God. And it's in intimacy with God that our hearts are also changed and shaped. There are a number of ways that this description of the new covenant uh, describes an intimate kind of way of relating to God. First of all, there's this language, this marriage language of God as husband to his people. The church is often described as the bride of Christ. And this is an intimate way of knowing our creator and our maker. It's an intimate relationship. What's also interesting in this description of the new covenant is the way that the law is moved. The location of the law and the location of God's presence move. Uh, In the old covenant, the law was written on stone tablets, on a scroll, and it lived in the temple. And the way that you related to it was that you had to hear it read to you and then you know, it was this thing that was outside of yourself that you had to match your life to. In the New Covenant, the law is written on our hearts and our minds. It's internalized. So that the way that we live life just becomes a natural outflowing of having the law within us, having God's word within us. Uh, similarly with God's presence, God dwelt in the temple. And only if you were one of the chief priests would you ever even get to go into the Holy of Holies. And now... In the new covenant, God through his spirit dwells within each one of us intimately. And prayer is one of the chief ways, I think, that we grow and access that intimate kind of relationship, that we can converse with God. What a gift. The final one is simply reading God's word, reading the Bible. Uh, And I'll make this caveat, not just reading about the Bible, but actually reading the Bible. Um, I think that's one of those key ways that the Spirit writes God's Word on our hearts and on our minds. Um, I, have, uh, I have used my dad for a number of examples in sermons uh, on both sides of issues, right? <laughs> um, sometimes he's the 
the glorious example, other times, maybe less so. I love my dad deeply. Um, and he has spent his life studying the scriptures. He's a Bible teacher, uh, just retired uh, a year ago. Um, he knows the scriptures inside and out. And I've watched my dad uh, over enough years now to have seen a change and a transformation that has happened slowly in his life in a number of areas. And he is an example to me now, uh, he's in his mid-70s, of, um, of someone who is aging well because he is open to being changed. He's open to how God is still, even now, changing his heart. Um, a lot of you know my mom had a, a pretty significant stroke a number of months ago, and um, what retirement looks for what retirement looks like for my dad is very different than I think what he imagined going in a little over a year ago. But I'm watching him open to how God is, is, is needing to change him um, because of his commitment to my mom and because God is constantly at work forming and shaping our hearts anyways. And this just happens to be the circumstance through which he's doing that with my dad. Uh, there's, a, there's a great story about my dad that I've, I've never actually done a lot of research to know if this is uh, word-for-word truth, but here's the story. Um, many of you know Eugene Peterson. He, he translated the message uh, version of the Bible and has written a number of other books. That I, I love Eugene Peterson. I'm a big fan. His son went to Whitworth and had my dad for class. And the story goes that one day he, uh, he walked up to my dad's office and, and knocked on the door and came in and found my dad as was his custom, reading his Bible. And he was, you know, he's this college student. He's like, what in the world? Haven't you got that thing mastered yet? All right? Like, I had no, my dad, read, he can read it in the original Greek and Hebrew. He's translated it into a tribal language in Africa. Like, he knows the Bible. And so Eugene Peterson's son's like, haven't you mastered this thing yet? And my dad looks up and said, it hasn't mastered me yet. And Eugene Peterson heard this through his son and then quoted it to his students. So Eugene Peterson has quoted my dad. <laughs> it hasn't mastered me yet. That's the, the attitude of someone, I think, who is willing to be changed all lifelong by the Holy Spirit. Is willing to have the inclinations of their heart formed and shaped by God's Spirit. It is a process. It is a lifelong process. We love stories of immediate change, right? Of addictions that are broken once and for all at one point. And I believe that God works that way. I do. I believe the Spirit can break the chains of addiction, can make significant change in miraculous moments in our lives. But I think that for most of us, for most of our lives, this kind of transformative work of the Spirit is a slow thing that builds over time. And I think that The practice of coming to the table each week can be viewed as an invitation to change, right? We can't come to this table not willing to be changed. So I want to give us a little space this morning and and, and even to think through some of the language of Jeremiah's call. To, to ask God in the silence here, what is it right now, today, at this moment in my life, what is it that you want to change? So I'm going to give you a moment. 
Lord, would you speak to your people this morning? How would you have us change so that our hearts are more inclined to do your will?